we thought we'd give a little different type of background to our story today. Um, someone who saw that told me that the text actually says that Goliath fell face forward, and we didn't want to be that true to the text in that instance there. Uh, as we continue our sermon series on fearless, uh, discovering the joy, replacing fear and faith, we come to maybe what is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. If you know nothing about the Bible, you've certainly heard the phrase, a David and Goliath moment. It's, of course, a, a series of either a, some type of event, maybe athletics, maybe in business, and maybe in relationships where one of the persons, one of the combatants, has a tremendous advantage. This is a story that we can tell over and over again, and it matures as we mature. We think of it as a kid's story in our Sunday school classes because there's enough action in it that kids enjoy uh, the drama of it. But we as adults desperately need to see some of the principles tucked away in this book. Today we're going to talk about standing up to our fears. A little background to this story. Uh, the Israelites are faced with their arch enemy in the valley of Elah, uh, the Philistines. And one method that the Philistines have thought of to taunt Israel this time is to place a mammoth giant by the name of Goliath, nine feet nine inches tall. If he were down in our gym, he barely would need to get on his tippy toes for his head to touch the rim of our basketball goal. And he carried around 126 pounds of armor on his mammoth frame. Now, he is not just put there to emotionally intimidate uh, the Israelites. He's put there to sling insults at their God. And it didn't just happen once. It happened over and over again for well over a month now. And guess what? The method was working. The Israelites incredibly intimidated. Now, Saul was frustrated. The king was, didn't know what to do. And so he kept upping the stakes and said, if you will go out and fight uh, this Goliath, this giant, I'll give you great wealth. I'll give you one of my daughters in marriage, and uh, maybe what might have been most appealing is that your family will never have to pay taxes again. You'll be exempt from it. Some of you are going, I'd push my son out there in a heartbeat, right? Well, uh, the, the intimidation had worked. They were stricken by a Goliath sickness, and fear was settling in the camp. Fifteen miles away, up in the valleys or the hills of Bethlehem, there was a musically inclined, poetic, harp-playing shepherd boy that didn't know anything about the battles and the conflict below, wasn't really politically minded as a teenage boy, was basically an errand boy. His father, Jesse, had wanted him to check on his older brothers that were in the military, and so asked David to leave the sheep with, with someone else for a moment, and you go deliver food to your big brothers. David got there, and in verse 26, he asked two different questions. One was just a, give me the details, give me the facts, and one, one of them was extremely profound as he surveys the scene of fear versus the giants. In verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this, this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The insult that David took was not a manward view. He didn't say, guys, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Do you realize how dumb you look out here? There's a giant, there's you all just standing, shaking in your boots. Come on, somebody go forward. That wasn't his thinking at all. He said, this person has defied the armies of the living God. <laughs> It'd be one thing if God was dead, if Israel was just an idol, if he were just some historical deity that we could reference in a memorabilia form. But no, David said, our God, the one true God, is alive. And this person's not just insulting us. He's gone too far now. He has said that our God is nothing. So the first principle this morning we see on our outline about standing up to fear is live with a concern for God's reputation. As Gary mentioned this week on our campus, we began our Christian schools new year. We have 350 students here, and I spoke to the kids or prayed for them, greeted them on the first day of assembly. It was the 6th of August. When you were going to school, didn't it start in mid-November or something like that? <laughs> but I was like, hey, welcome students. And they're looking at me like, I, I could be at the beach right now. And I said, said a word of prayer for them, and I left. I just kind of surveyed the room, and I remember back in the day where everyone was so concerned about how they appeared into everybody else. You know the sad thing is in many ways, we don't leave that behind with middle school and high school. We tend to take with us that deep concern for what others are thinking about us, how we're coming off, if others like us or if others are impressed with what we say or do or have. And that kind of thinking, you know what it'll do? It will multiply our fears exponentially. Why is that? Because people are so confusing and they're incredibly hard to please. All six, seven billion of us have a different angle on life and it's impossible to please man. And it makes us tremble with fear inside, thinking have we covered our bases enough? Have we come across looking decent enough to keep everybody satisfied? David had a much simpler approach. He wasn't concerned about his fellow Israelites, what they thought of him. He certainly didn't care what Goliath thought of him. But he said, you know what? There's somebody's rep on the line, and it's God's. And I want his name to be promoted and treasured as it should be. Well, it leads us to, as the story goes on, it points to a second principle for standing up to fear. And that's this, to learn to tune out the wrong voices. I remember uh, several years ago when I would, I would kind of, on most nights when I was home, I would take the responsibility of making sure that the boys were down, and we had, at one point, we had five boys under seven years old, and so we would, you know, bathe them and put them down, and then Susie would go downstairs and would uh, fiddle around in the kitchen, and it was sort of, have you ever played that game on whack-a-mole when you, you, you whack that thing and something else comes back up? I'd put them down, and one would come back up, and after going through that for a while, you know, I would go downstairs just kind of... I look at Susan and say, hey, well, what do you have going on the rest of the night? And all of a sudden I hear this, Dad? She said, what was that? And I'm like, nothing. 
I didn't hear, <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Now, we, we've all tried to tune out voices that we might should have listened to before. But the truth is, there are voices, so to speak, that it's best for our own emotional, spiritual life if we flat tune out. There's three different voices in David's life that he, he needed to learn to tune out, and that's this. To, first of all, tune out the voices that, A, misread you. In verse 27, they, they repeated to him what, was, what, had been, what, what they'd been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brothers, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are. And how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Boy, he had an attitude, didn't he? I, I mean, it, it was as though he was saying, you are a harpist. You are a shepherd boy. We are men. Leave the fighting to us. Leave now. Now, how many of you, let me see your hands out there. If you are the youngest in your family, youngest sibling, anyone? Okay, that's my people right there. And Susie's people, too. And um, now you're going to be able to relate to what David says in response next. Now, I had two older sisters, and I went through the phase growing up where anything I said just did not come out right to them. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Can I, can I say anything? And that's David sort of stealing my line in verse 29 where he says, Now, what have I done? Said David. Can I even speak? Some of y'all said that, didn't you, growing up? <laughs> can I get a word in at all? It's typical younger sibling speaking to an older sibling. I would point out, though, that Eliab's anger probably wasn't just his creepy little embarrassing brother coming in and asking the wrong questions in front of the grown-ups. No, it's probably had some angst from what we read in chapter 16 when the prophet Samuel was following the Lord's leadership to go find Israel's next king. Saul had disobeyed the Lord. It was time to anoint a new future king that would reign after Saul's death. They went to the house of Jesse, and Eliab, uh, Jesse brought in Eliab, thinking this might be the right one, and Eliab, nope, was rejected. Muscle-clad, handsome, strong son, one after the other, was found, brought before the prophet, and the Lord did not give peace to the prophet to anoint any of those the next king. Jesse is asked by Samuel, you got any more sons? And he's like, no, no. Oh, I got one, little squirt up Tending sheep, but not really. I Go get him. Brings him in here. All the, all the older brothers are probably rolling their eyes. And God speaks to Samuel's heart and says, this is the one. And he is anointed the next king over Israel, although it takes several years for it to come to realization. And the brothers weren't buying it. <laughs> the brothers weren't buying it. And Eliab looked at him in verse 28 and says, you are so conceited. Now, that wasn't David's mode of operation. He was just a food deliverer at this point, but he had been completely misread. That's one of the most painful things for us is to be misunderstood. Frankly, I would say, though, it shouldn't be as painful as we make it out to be. The fact is, if someone misreads us, if someone misunderstands us, and we know that God knows our heart, that should be the end of the matter for us. We shouldn't have to react with pride and anger that our ego has been bruised. It's a great thing for us when our ego gets bruised so the pride can sort of drain out of our hearts. In other words, don't get so bothered by being misunderstood if you know that God understands you. And I also would say a word to the Eliabs out there. Maybe you have been given to insulting other people. It's likely based on an 
anger issue or a bitterness issue from the past like he had. And the best way to deal with that is to constantly give feelings of jealousy, resentment to the Lord and ask for his freedom. For a heart of peace, the scripture says, brings life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Well, there's another voice that uh, David has to tune out, and that's B under number two. We must learn to tune out the voices that discount you in verse 33. Now the brothers are really embarrassed because uh, in verse 32, well, in verse 31, it says what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Can you imagine how the big brothers felt about that? Oh, great. Our boss has found out that creepy brother is here causing a scene. They're going to reprimand him. They're probably having a brother meeting about how they're going to take down David. So Saul, the king of Israel, has to waste his time on David, and they're probably fuming in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. (laughs) At that point, he was saying, you know, I'm ready. Let's do this. And then Saul looks at David and completely discounts him and says, You are not able, in verse 33, to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been fighting man from his youth. Completely discounted. Maybe you've been discounted before. And when we're discounted by others, sometimes in our pride, we can come back and show somebody that, no, I am that good, and I can do it. That's not the point of this story. The point of the story is to have a God-dominated mind rather than a fear dominated mode of thinking and David begins to recount to him his resume as to why he thinks he can do it he he says in verse 34 and verse 35 a little bit about his shepherding experience he says you know what when a bear comes after the sheep when a lion's come after them I, I don't just shoo them away I go chase them down and I have killed them before I'm sure that Saul is still very underwhelmed by it all but maybe sort of curious by the confidence of this young man And then in verse 36, it says, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. He's not letting go his concern for the reputation of the one true God. Look at verse 37. It says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You know, he was completely miscalculating the situation. Uh, Saul was. He had left God out of the entire equation. Now, oftentimes, have you ever noticed that we tend to forget what we should remember? But unfortunately, we remember what we should forget. And in this situation, David remembered the right things. He remembered that God was with him, that God delivered him, and had every reason to believe that God would help him. Well, in verse 38, Saul's kind of like, whatever. (laughs) Go and let the Lord be with you. I guess I'm not going to talk this guy out. I guess it's worth a try. And so maybe as a kind gesture, in verse 39, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. In verse 38, David fastened on his, his sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said, because I am not used to them. And so he took them off. I kind of like that picture. It's he was, you remember when you tried on your dad's shirts when you were little and you walked around and it, it didn't fit? This is how David looked slumped over in this massive armor. Thought, Saul thought he was trying to help, but that just wasn't the way David was wired. Maybe you've had people in your life that have tried to mold you into their image, and it's probably wisest for us, while being respectful, to live an authentic life rather than one that's patterned after the way others would see for us. In verse 40, though, he goes to his weapon of choice, 
Then he took his staff and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with sling in his hand, approaches the Philistine. I wouldn't discount this method. Now, you may, you may have grown up out in the woods with a little slingshot, and uh, yours is not like David. In this day, it was considered very much a weapon, and these small stones could get to going up to 150 miles an hour and were used in battle. And David apparently was particularly skilled in it by the grace of God. And did you notice what the last part of verse 40 says? He begins approaching the Philistine. Now, at this point, we find the third voice that David had to tune out, and it's this. We must tune out the voices, see, that defy God. Because Saul's not letting it go because this little bony teenager comes his way. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. So they're both walking awkwardly toward one another. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome. In other words, he was a cute little kid to this nine-foot-niner. And he despised him, and he said to David, Am I a dog that you'd come at me with sticks? Sort of ironic, because a dog, if they were coming after the sheep, you would sort of chase it away with a stick. And he's calling David a little stick. He's maybe named him Twiggy, and he's, he, he begins to taunt again, and the Philistines cause, cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So more taunting, and we have to learn to tune out voices that don't just discount us, but more importantly, discredit the one true God. There's much in our culture that would seek to defy your belief in the word of God. They'll, they'll bring reason your way. They'll bring compassion your way. They'll bring the idea of upgrading into this modern world. Why do you believe in such an archaic book? And we must learn with wisdom, with love, to tune out voices that defy truth and defy the one true God. Well, David sort of resolved to not let Saul have all the juicy lines. He could match him with spicy speech pretty well in verse 45. And this one is classic but it's also good for our faith. David said to the Philistine, this one brings chills to me, you, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. He's like, nine foot nine? You're miscalculating this whole thing. <laughs> You've got the wrong idea about who is in charge. And the third principle this morning about standing up to fear is simply this, to calculate everything from God's perspective. You know, all of us know what fear is. All of us know what deep anxiety is. Do you wake up some mornings with so much on your mind, maybe irrational fears that crept in there through the night, and you wake up and they're right here? I certainly do at times, and there's nothing more the enemy would like for you than to live a Goliath-dominated day where Goliath, so to speak, and that fear is calling the shots. But we only stay that way if we miscalculate, so to speak. If we don't factor in who is with us, whose side we're on, who, if we know Christ, is dwelling within us. And David said, I'm coming to you with the name of the Lord my God. You know, I read a story about a lady in 1952 that was trying to break a swimming record from the Catalina Islands to the coast of California, and as she got into the water and began her swim, there was a following boat behind her, and fog came to sort of 
make it more difficult for her to see where she was going. And after a while, uh, a good while, she ended up waving for her boat to come and pick her up, and she gave up the, um, the record attempt. And she got into the boat, and her uh, helpers told her that she only had 300 more yards to go, and she would have broken the record. <laughs> they asked her how she felt about it, and all she could say was, in front of me, all I could see was hopeless. That's exactly how many of us feel that in front of us, all we can see is hopeless because Goliath has the last word. But if we calculate the living God into our life, that yes, in front of us we see reality, we see difficulty, we see Goliath, but we're only glancing at Goliath and gazing at the one true God. David goes on to tell us another way we can stand up in our, to our fears in verse 46 and, and, and number 4 on your outline. That's to be gripped by a desire for the world to know God. Look in verse 46. It says, To this day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And listen to this. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. His great desire was that others, the surrounding nations, would come to the grips with who the one true God is. And David had a passion for the nations to worship God. I've found that when we don't want others here and around the world to join us in our worship of God, our fears multiply. But when we realize that God has given us a mission, a calling, all of us, to take his good news into our neighborhoods, into the city, and to the ends of the earth, fear begins to subside. It doesn't mean that fear is always eradicated, but it does mean that our desire for others to know him, worship him, and see him is greater than our crippling fears. That God's given us a mission to the ends of the earth. Many of you prayed for our team that went to Sierra Leone in late May and early June. We're certainly glad we went then instead of more recently when the Ebola virus has taken such a hold and hundreds have died in that country have been affected. I, uh, this week I, I emailed a pastor there that we'd worked with and he said that the village where we worked in the area where he lives has not yet been infected by it and that we're praying for them and asking for God's strength. But others this week commented when a missionary came back from Sierra Leone that had contracted Ebola, uh, there was a news analyst, Ann Coulter, that often has good things to say, but uh, certainly failed charm school. And she wrote that the missionary was idiotic for leaving America when there's so many needs here. Now, it's true that there are so many needs here, and it's true that we should be meeting them. But Jesus told us to take the good news to the ends of the ends of the earth. And when we pray, give, and go to that end, fear won't grip us anymore. Why? Because we have a desire for the whole world to know him. And David stepped up to his fears and overcame them because that desire for the world to know the one true God was greater than his desire to play it safe. Well, the spicy speech continues in verse 47. And he said, all, the, all those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. That teenager can talk, can he? <laughs> In verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone. If it were me, I'd want to take out an AK-47 at that moment. <laughs> but he took out a stone. 
He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. It's interesting how David saw Goliath, told him how it was going to be with God, and then quickly went for his Goliath. You know, I want to encourage you, another way to stand up to your fear, and number five in your outline is this, to refuse to let your Goliaths live. Have you ever noticed when Goliath begins to dominate the valley of your life that it begins to quickly take control? If we let the Goliaths of fear, the Goliaths of pride, of bitterness, of greed and hatred and lust, we let them have their way, they'll come in and want to dictate all of the shots. And so by the power of God, by the grace of God, we should not allow our Goliaths to live. We battle them with truth. We battle them with the word of God, but indeed the battle, as we see in verse 47, is the Lord's. Some of you know all too well your Goliaths, but you've been coming at it with a self-motivated power and a sort of a self-induced energy, and you've fallen flat on your face. And this morning, I want to encourage you to remember verse 47, that the battle is the Lord's. He wants to live his life through you, and you must not be so gracious to your Goliaths, you must take them down by the grace of God and do it quickly. As we consider God's word and our response to him this morning, I'd like us to enter into a time of response. And as we do, I'd like us to bow together before him. Some of you may be here today, and your Goliath, so to speak, is basically years of unbelief. Maybe you are what you would describe as a thinking person and a religious person, but in terms of committing your heart to the living God, you've been resistant for maybe a variety of reasons. But maybe this day the Lord is giving you the grace to place your faith in Him, and we urge you in a moment to let today be the day of salvation. Living God, we come before you and with a sling of faith and with your smooth stones, and we're ready, Lord to not be governed by Goliath the bully anymore in our life. We want for you to have your way and the last word in our life. So shall it be as we now respond to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.